The scripture reading for today is 1 Thessalonians 4, 9-18, ESV. Now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words, the word of the Lord. Good morning, Sisters Row. My name's Alan Gates. I'm one of the elders here, and I'd like to welcome you, as has already been said, to our church this morning, to, uh, to all of our members, and to our guests. And let us first start off with a word of prayer. Dear Father, we just come before you and just ask you just to meet with us here this morning, guiding our hearts and just... We just pray to meet with us, be with us, calm us, help us to focus on your word and to hear your promise, your hope that you have for us. We thank you that you are the lion and the lamb, that you have uh, reigned for us and given us his strength. And we just look to you through this time. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to first start off, share with you a story called The Horse on a Dining Room Table. It's a story by Richard Kalesh. The story begins with a man who went on a journey. He went and sought out a wise man uh, to ask some questions. And once he found the man, he kind of sat with him and he said, before I continue my studies, I would like to ask you a question. He said, I want to know what a dying person feels when no one will speak with him, nor be open enough to permit to about their, his, his or her dying. After some time, the wise man finally answered, It is a horse on a dining room table. He didn't say any more. He just kind of kept quiet. The man left, 
content with the answer, hoping that someday he would understand what it meant. Sometime later, the man was invited to a dinner party. And as all the guests were mingling and just kind of enjoying the hors d'oeuvres, eventually the host opened up the dining room table, dining room area, where they could go and have their dinner. The man was the first to enter, and lo, there was a horse sitting on her dining room table. Uh, being the first one, he was able to kind of see as the other guests come in with similar. They had astonishment, shock, and even the host who walked in let out a little shriek. But nobody said anything. No one mentioned anything. Eventually, the host had everyone take their places and serve their food and sat down. While all the while, which is kind of cramped, trying to, everybody's trying to eat without touching the horse or even looking at it. You know, it was kind of created an awkward experience for many of them. Uh, at times, people try to start up conversations about the news, the weather, or politics, but each time it always failed. The man thought to himself about saying, hey, look, there's a horse here. But he was afraid, but he didn't know the host well and didn't want to embarrass him. He thought about saying, I know what it's like but he knew that wasn't really true. He thought about even saying, I don't mind that there's a horse here, but he also knew that wasn't true. Instead, he kept quiet just as the rest, and eventually the what he called the nightmare of an evening ended, and he left. He learned later that the host was hoping that this event would, be, uh, would go well, be a success, even despite having the horse there. For they feared that if they spoke of it, that it would make the conversa- or make the evening be awkward or make people feel uncomfortable, which obviously it already did. Or they were fearful that maybe he would, that somebody would offer sympathy or understanding, which is what they needed, but they didn't really want it. Instead, the man t- avoided the people in the area uh, because of the awkwardness, because of the fear of it. Some years later, the man set on another journey, uh, to seek out the wise men again. He learned that he was still alive. And again, he found him and sat with him and asked again, I want to know what it's like for a dying, what, it, what a dying person feels when no one will speak with them or be open enough to permit them to talk about their dying. After some time, the wise men again answered, it is a horse on a dining room table. And he continued by saying, it is a horse that visits every family, young, old, rich or poor, simple and wise. It is a horse that no one wants to speak of or talk of. Yet, by not speaking of it, it only creates more fear, more creates more tension. But if you're willing to speak of it and be gentle, then it lessens that fear, and you can enjoy your time with each other in that place. The man, wise man, invited the man to dinner into his little tent. And as the man entered, he noticed on the mat there was a horse sitting there. And the wise man looked at him and said, Don't mind that horse. He won't bother us. And they enjoyed their evening together. The story kind of, you know, kind of shares a story about the subject of death. You know, it's not something that we all enjoy talking about, obviously. You know, it's kind of a taboo. Uh, it's, you know, it's a bit of a sobering thought to think about our own death and grief. You know, in a culture that we live in, it's said that we are a death-denying culture. You know, we have sanitized death to movies and TV shows. We have, you know, with all the health care uh, progress that we have, 
that we, you know, we have placed death more in the healthcare setting, that a lot of people don't see it, don't know it. Yet by not seeing, by speaking of it, we grow a deeper fear and unknown of it. Uh, I work as a hospital chaplain, and I know over the past couple of years, a common discussion I've had with nurses is about how, with everything that's going on, we wish that people would talk more about death, more be willing to, be open to it. But obviously, as I said, it's a very sobering thought to think about it. You know, in the past few weeks, we have been, as I said, going through our study on heaven, talking about heaven and all the promises that waits for us, uh, the promise of the resurrection, the promise that we will be with Christ, and that we will be out of this suffering. But the fact that the matter stands, you know, if Jesus tarries and does not come back during our lifetime, we will all face death at some time point. All, one of our loved ones will face death. Many of you have already gone through seeing your loved ones pass away and dealing with the grief. So a question that comes as we've been hearing about heaven, about the promise that awaits us, how do we face death and face grief in light of the promise that we have in heaven, in light of the promise that God will come for us again? And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. And we'll be looking at three answers to this question. First is being in relationship with one another, mourn differently, and third, encourage one another. The first is a being in relationship with one another. We know that from the very beginning in Genesis, God created us for community, for relationships. Even before the fall, the first thing God says that was not good was that man was alone. And he created Eve to have a companion. Obviously, we see our relationship play out from that, from marriage, but also in our friendships and in our families together and connecting into that. Ultimately, we are created to be known and to be loved. And ultimately, we find our fulfillment in relationships is with God and with Christ. But we are not to be alone. We are not to be uh, try to do this all on our own. We are to be together with each other. In our passage this morning that we heard, Paul speaks of this to the Thessalonians. He begins in the first of the chapter about how they are to walk uh, according to, to be Christ-like, according to God. And in verse 9, he talks about continue your brotherly love with one another. You know, something that they were already doing. But he tells them to continue it more and more in their love. And he gives them four exhortations to this. To live quietly, mind your affairs, to work with your hands, and to live as an example to others. Paul is telling them to continue living out your lives, to continue being in relationship with one another. We know that there was a common problem some in the early church that some thought Jesus was coming back just then and there and they would quit their jobs or quit working, you know, just waiting. But this is not what Paul calls upon them. He calls them to continue living their lives, living as an example to others, showing their love for one another, caring for each other, being that example. And what is the best way that we can be example to others? It's what Christ says, they will know you by your love for one another, by caring for one another, being in relationship. When we are in relationships together, we do love one another. We care for each other. We laugh. We cry. We support. We pray for one another. Ultimately, we are called to be together in the midst of that. The Christian tradition we know celebrates this that we are to show emotions towards one another, caring for one another. Sometimes in certain, I know, cultures or certain backgrounds, 
sometimes emotions can be kind of tamed or you know, shameful, don't, don't show so many emotions. But this is not what God has called us. He has called us to create, to love one another, to care for one another, to show our love. Uh, Martin Luther talks about that there is no disgrace in having natural affection. We are not stones. We are not stone-like. And the thing is, when, when death happens, when our relationships are disrupted, grief happens. And we grieve because we love the other person, because we care for them so much that we, you know, it comes out of us that we grieve, we cry, we're sad, we get angry. It's because we care for each other. Uh, in a book, All of Our Losses, All of Our Griefs, uh, pastors talk about the capacity to love and to be loved is the remaining mark of the image of God. And ultimately, to be a follower of Christ is to love life and to value people and things that God has given to us in such a way that losing them brings sadness. You know, ultimately, we are to be in relationships with one another. Sometimes it is hard to be in relationship with each other. The vulnerability, the, the, the reality that we will get hurt or lose someone. I experienced this in my own life during a p- brief period of time where through a lot of disappointment and hurt, I decided to put up a wall and shut myself off to people. Uh, this only, really, this led, instead of protecting me, this led to more emptiness, to a darkness, and to really a hard heart. That was only God that could break through and, in a sense, teach me how to be willing to love and care for those and be loved. And at the heart of it, it means being vulnerable. C.S. Lewis writes in his uh, book on four loves, to love at all is to be vulnerable. If you want to make sure of keeping your heart intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it around carefully with hobbies, little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe. But in that casket, safe, dark, emotionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. At the heart of it, we are called to be in community with each other, be vulnerable, to love one another. Sometimes when grief hits us, we can think, no, I just I can't go through this ever again. But the reality is we're all called to continue being in relationship, taking the risk of being hurt, of going through that pain, that suffering. Uh, Henry Nowen says that the more people you love, the more pain you experience. But this is what God has called us to be. You know, there are some religions that teach to avoid all attachments, to keep from suffering. But this, again, like I said, as we heard last week, that Christianity is very unique, that we have a promise in God, and that we are called to be caring for one another, to love towards each other, to, to, to be stay connected. This leads us to our next point of how do we face death and grief, is that we mourn differently from our relationships with each other. We see in this passage, especially in verse uh, in verse 13, that Paul tells us that he does not want them to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who do who do who have no hope. Some have taken this to mean that we are not supposed to grieve, but this is not what Paul is calling us. He calls us to grieve with hope, with the promise, knowing that Christ will come again. It says in the next verse that Jesus died and rose again, this hope that we have in him. Ultimately, we are called. Grieving is a godly thing because, again, it shows that we love for the other. We see throughout scriptures uh, the uh, different ones grieving, starting with Jesus. In John chapter 11, verse 35, 
We see when Lazarus died, after talking with Mary and Martha and seeing the people, Jesus was moved with compassion and he wept. And in Beatitudes, Matthew 5, Jesus says, Blessed are they who mourn, for they will be comforted. And even going into the Old Testament, you see Ecclesiastes, a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance. Just not to mention the book of the Psalms and the book of Lamentations, where we see people crying out to God, pouring their hearts out with anger, with crying, with sadness, with joy even. In the midst of this, we are called to mourn and to grieve. So what does it mean to mourn differently for us as believers and as people of hope clinging to that? Well, John Calvin taught in writing on this passage that we grieve in moderation. And Martin Luther actually uh, kind of expounds upon this in a letter that he wrote to one of his parishioners whose son had died. He tells him, grieve the full expression of grief. You know, let your heart hurt, you know, grieve, weep for what's lost. But also remembering that Christ suffered for us. You know, keeping in perspective that ultimately Christ suffered more than us but also knowing that, yes, this hurts what you're going through. He says, too much emphasis on the particularity leads to a numbing self-absorption. On the other hand, generalizing invalidates an individual whose grief is always particular. For those who are caring caregivers, movement from the particular to the general requires sensitive timing so as not to cancel out the feelings of the individual whose grief is always unique. What this means is, there's a tension, there's a balance. When you get, when a person dies and when we're going through grief, we are kind of in the heart, we feel like there's no hope. You kind of fall into a place of despair. And it seems, how will I ever get through this? And the thing is not to get stuck there, not to be placed there forever, but to be able to linkish and look to the hope that you have. But also not going to the other extreme of generalizing that, just saying, no, it's okay, or giving yourself into platitudes, or believing that it's numbing, in a sense, denying your grief. Because again, as I said, when you love, when you're in a relationship, you grieve, you show your love for one another in that. And there is a weird tension, there's a balance in the midst of that, and trying to find that place. Something I've noticed working with a lot of families is when we grieve, we go from the heart to the head, you know, and sometimes it's a weird Sometimes it varies how it goes. You know, it's hard to really pinpoint when a person goes to that place. But when they're in the heart, it's about being with them in the midst of it. Well, at times in the head, you can kind of talk about different things in the midst of it. Ultimately, though, grief is, you know, expressed in different emotions. Sadness, anger, and quietness. Each of us grieve differently. And depending on the relationship, depending on the circumstances in the midst of it. But at the heart of it, it is still about grieving, caring for the loved one. Now, I should add, it is okay to be angry, even in your grief. It is okay to be angry with God. God is big enough to handle that. You know, we see this in the Psalms, at times with the prophets or even the psalmists, where they get angry with God. But the point is not to get stuck in that, but to turn it to God, to grow in your faith with Him. To be willing to say, I don't understand what's going on, God. But I'm willing to trust you in the midst of this. I'm willing to give you my anger in the midst of all that's going on. Again, clinging to this hope and grieving in moderation, finding that 
tension, that balance, and each person will be a little different with that. And we can have this hope, and we can claim this hope, um, because we know that Christ has died and rose again, that he will come for us. You see this in passage. Uh, Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He goes into what the gospel is, that Christ will come for us. Specifically, he says in verses 54 through 57 that death has been conquered. Oh, death, where is your sting? That he has no power over us. Yes, we still feel the effects of death while we're still here. But ultimately, death has no power. We have a hope. As we heard last week, we, as Christians, we are accepted in grace. That We have this belief in Christ, knowing that he will come for us. While other beliefs and other religions teach that, you know, you have to work. You're just, you have no sure to hope. You have no con- concrete hope. You're just hoping that you did enough. But for us, we know that Christ has promised us when we accept him, when we call out to him, that he will hear us and care for us. And this means that we can talk about death. We can be open with it. We can talk about the horse that is on our dining room table. We can be willing to. Uh, in my own uh, kind of stories and what I've seen in the hospital is uh, a common discussion I hear, a common theme with some families, especially when they're having to make some of the most difficult decisions of their life, moving their loved one to end-of-life care, choosing comfort care, and moving, taking off all the breathing machines. They will share with me, like their emotions, that there is a joy, there is a contentment, knowing that my loved one will be with Jesus, that they will be out of the suffering. But they also share there's a sadness, there's this grief, this emotion that also that they're feeling. It is almost feels like a paradox. Most of them, you know, it is hard to describe because, again, as Christians who have hope, is that tension that we live in. And it is only as believers that we have this, that we know this, that we can experience this. And it is a weird place. It's so hard to describe. You know, it's kind of even reminds you of what Paul talks about, the peace that surpasses all understanding that encapsulates us, controls us, comes in us. But in this, that we can be honest and open about death. And I would even say, get on a little soapbox, be willing to talk to your families about it. Obviously, yeah, it's not something you always just want to talk about all the time. But find those times to be willing to talk about it. What does this look like? What does this mean? What does end-of-life care? Talk to your physicians. Uh, talk to family, talk to us, the pastors, or any of us, include us in your decisions. You know, in the midst of this, when we name it, when we talk about it, we lessen the fear. We lessen its control over us in the midst of it. I have seen this so much with families that are willing, that do have this hope, that are willing to have already had these conversations. And there is a different sense of grief for them. They grieve with hope. They're still crying. They're still upset but they have a peace about them, a contentment in the midst of it versus those that I've seen that have never had those conversations. They don't know how to move forward. And, you know, and use these times, you know, as I said, with all the different emotions. You know, you can laugh about it, you can cry, but again, going back to the hope that we have in Christ, the hope that we can grieve because we know that Christ will come back for us. The last way that we can face death and grief is by encouraging one another. Paul continues not only about how that Christ has has died and rose again, and that he's coming back for them, but he tells them that 
he will come. He will come for the, uh, those who have died already before and raise them up. We will meet with him. There's a common problem with the Thessalonian church that somehow they got the belief that those who have died were not going to be resurrected. We aren't sure where they got that belief, but as one writer described it, imagine the distress trying to keep your loved one alive for fear that they may miss out on the resurrection. But Paul wants them to understand and us to understand, no, that Christ will come for us, that we all have this hope in him, that he will cry out for us and bring us up. He will bring those who have already died before us up in the air, and we will meet with him in the midst of that. Many have, of course, many of you probably have heard this passage used in, in the doctrine of rapture and eschatology aspects. But this really isn't the point that Paul is getting at, because at the end of the chapter he says, encourage one another with these words. As one commentator writes on this, D. Michael Martin says, if we understand this passage as an attempt to comfort the grieving, we find the passage is complete. If, on the other hand, we approach this passage expecting an eschatological treatise, we will only experience frustration. At the heart of it, Paul is giving pastoral comfort to the church. And that is the same comfort that we have here, this hope that we have in Christ, knowing that we as it hurts when we grieve, when we lose a loved one, when we lose that relationship. But we do have hope that one day we will all be reunited. We will all come together. And this is the promise that we've heard throughout this series on heaven. So how do we care encourage one another in the midst of this? Mainly being with them, being a listening presence to another person, caring for them. You know, a common question sometimes is, what do you say? And the reality is, there is really nothing you can say because we're looking for a way to fix, way to take away the pain. And the truth is, we're, in that sense, we can't. What we can do is say, I'm here for you. How can I care for you? How can I support you? How can I be with you in the midst of this? And really just you know, being present with a person. Some people want to talk. Some people don't. Some people just want presence with it. Uh, writer Joe Bailey writes in a book called View from a Hearse, where he shares the experience he lost three different children to death. He writes, don't try to prove anything to the survivor. An arm about the shoulders, a firm grip of the hand, a kiss. These are all the proofs grief needs, not logical reasoning. He continues and shares his own personal story. He says, I was sitting, torn by grief. Someone came and talked to me of God's dealings, he said things I knew were true. I was unmoved, except the wish he'd go away. He finally did. Another came and sat beside me. He didn't talk. He didn't ask leading questions. He just sat beside me for an hour or more, listened when I said something, answered briefly, prayed simply, and left. I was moved. I was comforted. I hated to see him go. Let's be honest, it's hard, this setting with someone in the midst of it. You know, it's something we're always, especially as in a hospital setting with chaplains, we're taught to be a non-anxious presence, learning to be present with somebody in the midst of it. Again, I said, everybody grieves differently. And each person is different, and each relationship is differently. But at the heart of it, it's caring for one another, showing compassion, is about suffering with one another, as Henry Nouwen says. It's about caring for them. There is a place and time where we can speak of hope, where we can share of truths. 
but knowing that in the midst of it. Some more practical ways of caring for him, especially bridging the heart and the head in the midst of grief, is praying with another person. Some have shared they don't really know how to pray or how to say what the words are on them. But praying, we can cry out to God with another person, with the heart and the sorrow that we feel, but also a reminding of the hope that we have in Christ in the midst of it. Prayer can be that great conduit between those two in the midst of it. Another way is remembering the person and finding ways to honor the legacy. Families a lot of times will share stories, stories that make them laugh, sometimes make them cry, sometimes that make them frustrated. That all of it is about remembering the life and their relationship again about the person, what they meant to each other and care for. And ultimately, it's about reintegrating into the community, bringing them back. As I've said before, we are called to be in relationship with one another. When we're going through grief, sometimes we can isolate ourselves, believing that no one understands, no one knows what I'm going through. And we just wall ourselves off to people around us. But ultimately, at some point in our grieving, we are to enter in the community. We are to help those around us to reintegrate in community. Sometimes our identity gets shaken when our loved one dies. You know, we find our identity either in marriage or as a child or as a parent. And so reintegrating communities means, in a sense, finding a new normal, as they call it, and finding a new place in your relationships with one another. But ultimately, how do we face death and grief? It is by being, again, in relationship with one another, mourning differently, and grieving with hope, and encouraging one another. As we conclude, as we heard in the call to worship, one of the the great promises that we have waiting for us in Revelation 21, verses 3 through 5. You kind of hear that words again. It says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. He will dwell among them, and they will, shall be his people. And God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. For the first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. Hear that, that God will be among us. Our relationship will truly be with him. We'll be with Christ. Not only that, but death will be no more. There will be no weeping, no more crying, no more suffering. This is the hope that we have. This is why we can face death and grief. Why, as a community, we can come together and connect with one another in the midst of us. It is the hope that we have in heaven that we've heard about, that we can look to and cling to in the midst of the sorrow and the suffering that we face each in our lives. Let us pray. Dear Father, we just come before you and just cry out to you just to help us, to be with us. You know our sorrows, you know our grief, you know our lives, and we just look to you for this hope. We just pray to continue reminding of this every day, knowing of it, that you are coming for us again. And we do pray that you come quickly and before this time, that we just more or less look to you and just ask you just to be present with us. Give us this peace. Help us to embrace this tension of grieving and having hope and joy in the midst of all this. And help us as a community to come together to those who are hurting, to be present with them, and to care for them as only you can. 
Uh, we just look to you with all these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together.